John chapter 4. We're working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the gospel of John. It's rich. It's a target-rich environment. Today is no uh, exception. We left off in verse 43 of John chapter 4. I'm going to jump right in. Let's get to work. Uh, It says, now after the two days, this is a reference to last week when Jesus uh, came to Samaria, ministered to the Samaritan woman. She went out and proclaimed her faith broadcasted her faith, and the Samaritans all responded. They came out to see Jesus, begged him to stay with them. He stayed with them two days. Many of them believed. And so after those two days, he departed from there, and he went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. This is just reminding us uh, of that basic truth. We talked about it last week, that so often... Um, that people remember who you used to be, right? And, uh, and so, you know, the, a lot of times you don't have, uh, you don't have that, that honor in, 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 you know, the, in your own town kind of thing. And so Jesus testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen, that's key, all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. They saw all the signs, all the works and wonders that Jesus had done. And so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and he implored him to come down and to heal his son for he was at the point of death. And then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. As we get into it this morning, John chapter 4 is really an extension of the overarching theme of the book of John. As we saw when we began this book, that the overarching theme of the gospel of John is belief. That's the whole idea. You remember we started this book and I gave you the key verse of the entire gospel of John. It's John 20, verse 31, where John writes, these are written that you may, here it is, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That that word believe, uh, the idea is that it's a belief that goes beyond an intellectual belief to becoming a full confidence belief. It is a belief that you take action on. It's been said in regards to, uh, to you know, your finances. If you want to know uh, what it is that your priorities are, you look at your checkbook. And where your money goes reveals really where your, where your priorities are. And, and really, this applies to everything in life, that what you believe inevitably results in how you behave. What you believe inevitably informs everything that you do. I'll illustrate this with a story. We, years ago, were going out, a group of us uh, on staff at Revival, and a lot of the pastors and guys just went out for lunch one day. We went to sushi. And uh, one of the pastors that went with us, Jeff, uh, he'd never eaten sushi before. And so he looks at this, this green ball of wasabi, and he says, what's that? And one of the guys says, oh, that's Japanese guacamole. It's really good. He takes the whole ball of wasabi and gulps it down, and he tries to play it cool. He's like, oh, that's hot. And then all of a sudden, his face is beer. He's like, oh, that's really hot. He's just grabbing whatever he can, you know, to cool the fire that is in his mouth. Uh, the story illustrates fundamental truth regarding belief that you can't believe everything, right? Because not everything is true. 
Um, we live in a world today that's infected by sin. Uh, and the perpetrator of that is Satan, who's known as the father of lies. And we looked at this last week. C.S. Lewis was talking and, about the things, the lies that Satan sows. And he says one of the lies is that there's no heaven. Another lie that Satan sows is that there's no hell. But one of his most effective lies is there's no hurry. There's no hurry. You got time. You can live your life, party it up. And, uh, you know, when you're good and ready and you got all the party out of your system, then, you know, you can come to Jesus. Well, here in John chapter 4, Jesus has been addressing the beliefs of the Samaritans, right? He, he addressed a Samaritan woman, and she believed the lie that she could find fulfillment in relationships. It, it's, it's, it's a man who was going to satisfy all of her deeper, innermost needs. Uh, he addressed the lie of the group of Samaritan men that came to him who believed the lies of their pagan religion. And that word believe, it appears nearly a hundred times in the gospel of John. And John's gospel tells us that believing in Jesus is the gateway through which we are delivered from spiritual darkness into light. It's the gateway through which we escape judgment. Belief in Jesus Christ is the gateway through which we become children of God, where we are uh, laying hold of eternal life and escaping judgment. It's the gateway through which we receive the Holy Spirit, and belief is the gateway through which we're empowered for spiritual service. And ultimately, belief is what enables you and me to partake in the resurrection of life. And the story of Jesus' encounter with those Samaritans ends with true belief. If you remember, you look back at verses 39 and verses 41 and 42, it tells us that many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. Her testimony sparked within them a belief. And then we go on to read that many more believed because of Jesus' own words. They said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And so now here in our story, we find Jesus, he's returning to Cana of Galilee. The text reminds us that this is the area where Jesus had turned the water into wine. And once again, this issue fundamentally is of belief. We read the story, and of course, the story involves a sick boy and a desperate father. And we might be tempted to think, well, the big idea is about Jesus healing. Yes, that's a part of the story, but the big idea of the text, the main focus is belief. It's belief. And Jesus, he responds to this guy. And, and we read that in verse 47, he went to him and implored him. That word implored means he's begging Jesus. Just desperate man. And you can understand. Some of you have dealt with illness. Some of you are dealing with illness today. You know what it is to be desperate. You know that when you have a sick child. I remember a good friend of mine, Dave. We used to pastor together. We planted our first church together. And his daughter, Danielle, who he, had, he and his wife had dealt with infertility for years and years and years. And then she had a tumor, and it was, it was a desperate time. And an hours-long surgery, and the begging, Lord. So this is the scene, and then we see in verse 48, how does Jesus respond to this? He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And at first glance, we might think, man... <laughs> Jesus, that's a little harsh. 
you know, have a little compassion. This guy is desperate about his son, right? And the text tells us this guy is a nobleman. He's probably a high-ranking official in King Herod's court. This makes him a man of power and of means and of influence. And I would imagine that he has invested all of his power, all of his means, all of his influence, maybe hiring the best doctors, maybe spending lots of money for medicine and treatments, trying desperately to, to, to heal this son, but it's all to no avail, and he is powerless to save him. And again, some of you can relate. You know what it is to get bad news from the doctor. This last week, a lot of you have been praying for my dad, and you guys have been asking about my dad, and this last week I took him to the doctor, and, and we did not get the good news that we'd hoped for from the doctor. And so this man hears Jesus is back in Cana. It's only about 20 miles from where this man lives. It's about 20 miles from where his boy lies on death's door. And so this guy drops everything. Why? Because he'd heard about Jesus. Maybe he'd heard the stories of the miracles that Jesus had performed in Jerusalem, as the text alludes to. Maybe he'd heard the stories. He's there. Where's this happening? This happened in Cana. And you remember that this is where Jesus turned the water into wine and the servants saw this miracle and maybe the word has traveled and now he has heard that Jesus, this guy that can do miracle work, he is in town and so he drops everything. And you know, I mean, we go through lives, our, our schedules, everything fills up and we think everything is so important, so critical. And then all of a sudden something like this comes up and nothing else matters, man. This is the thing. And so you can see maybe this guy's thinking, man, I have tried everything else. Maybe this guy, Jesus, can do it. And Jesus' response here, what's he do? He lumps this guy in with all the others in the region. He says, unless you people, plural, see signs and wonders, you, again, plural, will by no means believe. If you were with us in John chapter 2, you remember that when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, again, the text alluding to that, well, John's gospel tells us that many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. Why? Because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The idea is that these people wondered at Jesus' miracles, but they didn't worship him as God. Here's the problem with that. The problem is, is that whatever miracle it is that you think you need from God, this guy's coming to Jesus, he does not yet know him as Messiah. He just knows him as miracle worker. And whatever miracle it is that you think you need from God, a miracle in your marriage, a miracle in your finances, a miracle with your kids, a miracle maybe even for a healing, an illness that you're dealing with, Without faith in the miracle worker, at the very best, any miracle that you might receive is temporary. It's fleeting. James says, what is your life? It's a vapor. It's here for a little while, and then it's gone. It's like the morning mist. It's like the morning fog. It's here just for a little while, then it's gone. Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? 
Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And so the bigger issue at hand here is not a sick child, it's unbelief. Understand, unbelief is the sin that damns you to hell. I'll have people come to me from time to time. They'll say, oh man, I was reading the Bible and it talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and I'm afraid I might have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I'm like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't because really what is the definition of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's unbelief. That's the only sin. That's the only sin that Jesus can't forgive. It's unbelief, right? If you're concerned that you have, you know, committed the unpardonable sin, that tells me that the Holy Spirit's alive and well and he's working in your life. I recently posted on social media just a, a reshare of somebody else's post where, you know, so often we get discouraged because I'm frustrated. Like, oh man, I'm struggling against sin. Hey, thank God there's a struggle. That shows that there's a Holy Spirit working in your life, Right? Because the unbelievers, they don't care. They just call it Tuesday, man. This is just what I'm doing. But the fact that you have a struggle tells me that God is alive and well and working in your life. So Jesus here, here's what he recognizes. This is the reason for his response. He recognizes that this man, he's not just dealing with a terminal child. He's dealing with a terminal dad, right? That's what's at stake here. See, the dad's worried about physical illness, but there's a bigger illness that has infected them both. That's what the Lord is concerned about. For so many years, working as a paramedic in the fire department, I'd go on different calls. I remember one particular call where we rolled up. It was a traffic collision. We had several patients, and one of the patients was a little child. As I recall, maybe three years old. And, uh, and this kid, because of the impact and because of all the broken glass, he had a lot of facial cuts. He was bleeding like a stuck pig, and he looked horrible. But I knew as a paramedic, you know, you're not, this kid's not going to die from facial cuts. Like, you're not going to bleed out from, from, from facial cuts. But this kid presented differently. He was very quiet, which is a huge red flag. He's not wailing and screaming and crying. He's very stoic. It was very guarded, and as we took his vital signs and as I assessed this kid, his belly was rigid and hard, and he was guarding. And so I focused on that because I'm like, this kid's got an abdominal injury. He's bleeding internally. And everybody on scene, all the, the, the parents and the, those folks, they're all concerned about the external. But as a paramedic, I knew that the internal is what's going to kill this kid. We need, to, we need to move fast. And we, you know, called an airship and got this kid going, PDQ and in a hurry, man, got the IV started. I never once addressed or took care of the facial cuts. Could care less about those things. Let's focus on what's going to kill this guy. See, at this point, this father's struggle is with the effects of sin. And he's looking for a miracle to fix the effects of sin, but he's oblivious to the bigger issue of un belief. That's the big deal. John, Martha, John MacArthur in his commentary, he observes that the Bible describes various levels of unbelief as you read through the scriptures. You find people who have unbelief due to a lack of exposure. These are people like Andrew and John, who we met in John chapter 1. These guys have hearts that are prepared to, to meet the Lord, they're open to the revelation of truth, they have a knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, they have a thirst for God, and so when John the Baptist shows up and says, hey, there's Jesus, 
There they go. They immediately believe and receive. As well, you have people who are dealing with unbelief due to a lack of information. These are people who need to be led to belief through instruction in the scriptures. We just saw that with the Samaritan men last week. They come to Jesus, beg him to stay with them two days, and through this instruction in the scriptures, the revealed word of truth, they come to believe. Well, we deal with people who have unbelief due to deliberate hard-heartedness. The Pharisees fall into this category. These are people that no matter what you say, it doesn't matter what you do, they are not going to believe. Jeremiah describes this type of people as people with eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. Most likely the saying, there's none so blind as those who will not see, is with Jeremiah's scripture in mind. They just ain't going to believe. Here in Cana, the predominant issue that Jesus is facing is unbelief due to a perceived lack of evidence. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe, right? They're open to God, but they need tangible proof. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 falls into this category. Coming to Jesus. Man, nobody can do the things you do unless they're sent from God. Okay, Nick, you're on the right track, right? Signs, tangible proof. This father falls into this category. And so Jesus in his ministry here, and really the overarching theme of the entire Gospel of John, is that he provided these convincing proofs to combat the sin of unbelief. The Bible calls these convincing proofs signs. We'll come back to that. So this guy, he hears that Jesus is in town. In verse 47, as we read it, he implored Jesus. He begged Jesus repeatedly. And Jesus points out in verse 48, basically, you believe me for the miracle to heal your son, but it's going to take a miracle for you to believe in me. This is the idea here. Verse 49, we continue. And the nobleman says to him, Sir, come down before my child. This is a term of affection. This is like me saying, this is my baby, Lord. Come down before my baby dies. Now, at this point, the commentators will tell you as you study this that there's two misperceptions that this man articulates in that simple sentence. He's got two misperceptions. One, he believed that in order for Jesus to heal his son, that he had to go to Capernaum to do it. And he believed that Jesus only had a short window of time to operate in. In other words, his perception of Jesus was that Jesus was limited by time and space. Here's why that's important. Not only does this reveal that this man has a fundamental misunderstanding about who Jesus is and the power that Jesus has, but it also reveals that he has a fundamental unbelief about Jesus' deity. See, believing in Jesus means that we worship him as God for who he is, not as some genie who's going to grant us our three works for what he can do, right? God is omnipresent. That means he operates outside of time and space. God is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. God is omniscient. This means that he is all-knowing. And here's the application for us, just hitting the pause button right here as we consider this. This man doesn't yet believe in Jesus as Messiah. He will. But we believers 
sometimes we can lose sight of all of that. We, we forget who it is that God is as we come to him begging him with our needs. I think about Mary and Martha when Lazarus was ill. And they send word to Jesus, hey, Lazarus is dying, you better get back here quick. And Jesus purposely delays coming back, and so he gets there, and now Lazarus is dead, and they've put him in the tomb. And Martha greets him, and Mar- typical Martha, she's like, Lord, if you blew it. You know, that's basically what she's saying. If you had only been here. I mean, you got the memo for crying out loud. Why weren't you operating on our time frame according to our agenda? If you'd have been here, Lazarus wouldn't be dead. But Jesus wasn't working according to Martha's time frame. He wasn't working according to the limitations of time and space that she ascribed to him that he ought to be working in. See, we need to keep in mind that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord, and he's sovereign, and he operates on his timeline. He operates according to his purposes. Not only does that mean that things won't always happen when and where we expect, that means, guys, the things won't always happen how you expect. I have to be honest with you. Last week, going to the doctor, I expected something different. I was worried about what the answer was, but I was expecting something different. Spoiler alert, Jesus is going to heal this guy's son. But listen, he doesn't always heal, does he? He doesn't always heal as we would like. Paul begged the Lord three times, I got this thorn in my flesh, we don't know what it was, we speculate what it was, an eye problem or whatever, but we don't know what it was, but what we do know is that the Lord said, I ain't going to heal you, Paul. My grace is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Lazarus, in our example, God operated on his timeline. Job, read through the book of Job, man. If, you, if, you, if you're all into health and wealth and prosperity and all of that, Job will be a reminder that God, God allows bad things to happen for his sovereign purposes in our lives. Now, in this instance, he does heal. He answers this man's request, and in so doing, he gives him a sign. Again, verse 49, the nobleman begs him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your son lives. And so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. That's amazing, right? Think about the the struggles, the trials that you've been through. Think about the things that you begged God for, and then all of a sudden, yep, go your way. It's good. (laughs) You're like, can you sign some document for me? You know, can you, there's not a lot to work with here. God, like, could you give me a little bit more? I need kind of, I need something more, you know, than that. And Jesus just says, go your way, your son lives. And so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. What a, just, a, I won't really go too far with this, but just, in the miracle at Cana, water into wine, who, who saw the miracle? The servants. Who sees the miracle now? The servants. Those are their servant of the Lord. Your son lives. And then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, yesterday, 
At the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lived, and he himself believed in his whole household. And this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. This isn't the only the second sign that Jesus did. This is, the, this is saying this is the second sign that he did in this region. That's the idea. But the key word is believe. Verse 50, the man believed. Jesus, in his grace and mercy, he healed that, that boy. And in so doing, he gave this father a sign that led him to faith. Some of you have had God work in a similar way in your life. Where God's given you this miraculous sign to lead you to faith. Right now in the Middle East, Tom Doyle writes a book entitled Dreams and Visions. It'll blow your mind. And it's how God is supernaturally working in the Middle East to bring the gospel to people in places that are, that are closed, absolutely, completely impossible for Christians to get into to witness. And God himself is appearing to people in dreams and visions. One of the stories in this book, they're all true stories, is that there was this, this Christian man and, uh, and, and I forget which country it was in. I think it was Iran. But God had appeared to him. And he told him, I want you to go down to this particular marketplace in town. And he's like, why? And, and the Lord didn't give him anything else. Just to go there. So, so he goes down the marketplace. He's like, okay, I'm here. And what am I supposed to be doing here? And all of a sudden, from across this crowded market, here's this gal covered in her burqa, and she screams out, You! And she comes to this man and she said, I had a dream last night and you were in it and God told me that you would tell me about the Messiah. And he proceeded to share the gospel with this woman and she came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that is just one of, of an ocean of stories, how God is miraculously working and giving people dreams and visions and revealing himself in a supernatural way. Some of you have been led to faith by supernatural means. I remember when we planted our first church and my neighbor down the street went in for a simple surgery through a blood clot and he was brain dead on a ventilator. And we were praying for this man's salvation. If you're a medical person, you know that when you get a flat EEG, there ain't no coming back from that. Not a flat EKG, but a flat EEG, a brain scan. And he had a flat EEG and we were praying and praying and praying and all of a sudden we get word he woke up. He's fine. Miraculous works of God. Some of you have experienced things like that. Or maybe like the Samaritans, you've been led to faith through the witness and through the evidence of the scriptures. Whatever way, listen, understand, Jesus has given to us tangible proof that he is God. God's word contains hundreds of prophecies given hundreds and hundreds of years in advance that have been fulfilled, proving that God is who he says he is and that he does what he says he's going to do. God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, he said, remember the things I've done in the past, for I alone am God. He said, I am God, there's none like me. 
Only I can tell you the future before it ever even happens. Everything that I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. Paraphrase, God's saying, I pull a Babe Ruth, man. I stand at home base, and I point to the outfield, and I say, that's where this next pitch is going. And that's where it goes. And he does that over and over again. The Bible tells us that Jesus provided many convincing proofs of his resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them, the disciples, during the 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Paul expands on that to the Corinthians. He says, for I delivered to you, first of all, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, here it is, and that he was seen by Cephas, and then by the 12, and after that, he was seen by, only, by over 500 brethren at once. Strongest testimony in court of law is eyewitness testimony. Strongest evidence. And all those 500 people, and he goes on to say, some of them are still alive. <coughs> some of them have passed away. Not all of them believers. And if he was lying here, they would have said, Paul, you're lying. We didn't see that. But he said, no, go ask them. They saw it. Some of the greatest evidence that Jesus provides, this tangible proof, is the evidence of a changed life. Some of you have experienced that. You look at a work that God does. He pulls a rabbit out of a hat with somebody, and you're like, he has to be God. Like, that guy is different. But no matter the way that you come to believe, it inevitably requires faith. The Bible says in Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Now, just in case you missed it, here's the proof that this guy believes. Look again at our story. Jesus says, go your way, your son lives. So he believed, goes his way, and... As he was now going down, verse 51, his servants met him, told him, hey, your son lives. And then he required of them the hour when he got better. And they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Yesterday, where'd today go? Because we left with him saying to Jesus, oh, please, heal my son. He says, go your way, your son lives. And then the text says he went down and we get the impression he went down right then to his house. But no, the servants tell us he went down the next day. When, when was my son healed? Yesterday. Where did today go for this guy? I mean, is he like, well, I'm already in Cana, so I think I'll go by the In-N-Out, and uh, maybe I'll, I'll swing by Walmart and pick up some stuff there. Like, you know, <laughs> what on earth is this? It's faith. It's faith. Jesus said it. And he believed it, took it to the bank. Now he can rest in the promise of God. Are you resting in the promise of God? What's the status of your faith today? Hebrews 11.1 tells us faith is the assurance of things hoped for, that it's the conviction of things not seen. And Warren Wearsby, he summarizes the progression of this man's faith, that it began with a crisis faith, like so many of us. 
I'm desperate, God. All the king's horses, all the king's men can't put Humpty Dumpty together again. My son needs a miracle. And so he runs to Jesus. And then it moves to a confident faith. Jesus says, go your way. Your son's healed. And he believes God. He believes him. And then now it moves to this confirmed faith. When, when was he healed? Yesterday, seventh hour. Right when you were talking to Jesus. Right exactly when Jesus said, go your way, he's healed. And then we read it blossoms into a contagious faith. Verse 53, he himself believed and his whole household believed. I'm going to close right here, and I'm going to ask you three questions, and we're going to close in prayer. And of course, I can't talk about belief without giving an invitation. And so I would just simply say that as we close in prayer, I'm going to give you here today, live and in person with us, you listening online, an opportunity to put your faith in Jesus and to believe upon him. But I'd have you write these three questions down, really take a walk with them this week. Here's my first question. Where are you at today in the progression of your faith? Is yours a crisis faith? Is that the season that you're in, that you're desperate, that you're coming to the Lord right now? Heal me. Heal my son. Is yours a confident faith? Jesus said it and I believe it. Is is it, is it a confirmed faith? Man, I, I, I've seen Jesus over and over again just be true to the promises that he's given me. Or is in your faith walk, are you in that place of a contagious faith where you believe and now you're able to influence your whole household, your neighbors, your friends? Second question, what signs has God given to you in your faith journey? I think about David facing Goliath. And you're just a boy, you can't do this. And he says, when I was a boy tending my father's sheep, I was attacked by the lion, the bear, I fought, I overcame them. This Philistine would be just like them. What did he do? He was strengthened by his past wilderness experiences. He, he was able to hearken back to signs that God had given to him. What signs has God given to you? If you're in a season today of doubt, of, of, of trial, of turmoil, and you need to be reminded that God is faithful and that he's true, you think back to the signs that God has given to you. So healthy, so helpful. Third question, what lessons can we learn from John verse, chapter 4, verse 50 about our belief? The idea there is Jesus says it doesn't give him a lot to go by, but he believed it. We need to take a walk with that. What lessons can we learn from that?